Let's pray, and we're going to read Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Our text is 1 through 13, but I feel like we'll go to 14 and then pick up in 14 next week. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We uh, <clears throat> thank you for the journey that uh, Mark has taken us on through the story of uh, Jesus and his life and, and ministry. And we find ourselves um, where Mark, there's, there's a decisive line in the sand in, in Mark. And, and so the focus is the cross now <clears throat> and, and, and hard times and difficulty and the, the suffering that Christ is going to endure. And he <clears throat> truly, in this last six months of his earthly life, he steps up his teaching and preparation of the disciples for what um, they ultimately will endure. And so today he gives them some perspective on who he is. And so, Father, we pray that as we study this passage on the transfiguration, that you would help us to have greater insight on who Jesus is, um, that we would be in awe of him, that we would recognize that he is indeed God. Um, as we enter into the, the Christmas season, it's, it's, it's knocking and it's, it's right on the verge of entering uh, the time of year when we focus on the birth of Christ. Lord, we ask that um, the transfiguration would sort of guide us through Christmas, that, that we would recognize that the birth of Jesus was not uh, the creation of Jesus, but this was his first advent, that he is God, and he existed in eternity past, he exists in eternity future, and he came to earth to give us a glimpse of who God is. And so, Father, we pray that you would open our spiritual eyes uh, about who Jesus is through today's passage, uh, that you would give us perspective, um, that we would be able to endure uh, whatever cross it is that you have us carry uh, as we walk with you in this life. Um, Father, guide us now, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, <clears throat> as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. All at once, they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it 
that the scribes say that Elijah must come first. And he said to them, Elijah does come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did whatever to him, whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now as we work through this passage. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, the parallel accounts up behind me, you'll see that this uh, Matthew gives an account of the transfiguration in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. And Luke gives an account in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. If I, I, you know, normally I try to let you know if I'm referencing the other ones, but if I give something that's not before us, it's likely from those two accounts. Well, it has to be from those two accounts, or I'm wrong. So call me on it if, if I say something that is not there. Um, so today's passage, specifically verse 1, as we go, go into verse 1 of chapter 9, we, this is a good reminder to us that the, the chapters and verses in, in the Bible, are not inspired. They were placed there. Uh, thankfully, we're grateful for that French man who, who put the chapters and verses there in the 1500s. It makes it so much easier for us to navigate in the Bible. But sometimes when we look at the chapter and verses, it kind of uh, creates a, a, a book that's more segregated. And, it, and the book isn't really segregated. It's, it's a writing. It's an account. And so going from verse 38 of chapter 8 to verse one of chapter nine, it's a, it's a continuing thought. Uh, verse one of chapter nine is known as sort of a, a hinge verse that, that connects the, these two sections. Um, they belong together. They're, they're, they're critical together. And so in light of that, to give a little bit of a, re- a review of, of last week. So we do have the map behind us. I'm not going to address everything right away, but you have the Sea of Galilee and sort of the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, hopefully you guys know at this point where Capernaum is. Um, basically, actually they're a little bit right or east of Capernaum. Uh, they moved their way north to Caesarea Philippi, which is the, the word that's underlined that Caesarea Philippi. They were in Caesarea Philippi, and along the way Mark tells us that Jesus begins uh, to ask the disciples, uh, who, you know, who do people say that I am? And they're, they're dialoguing with Jesus, and they're, they're telling Jesus that, um, you know, some people say that you're Elijah. Some, some say John the Baptist. Uh, others, you're one of the, the prophets of the Old Testament. And then that conversation shifts to where Jesus then focuses on the disciples and he says, well, who do you guys say that I am? And that's where Peter opens his mouth. And, correctly. Uh, not, it's so easy to pick on Peter, but we, I'm, I'm really feeling convicted not to pick on Peter. I just, I so identify with Peter. I love Peter. And, and uh, Peter says, you're the Christ the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, you're absolutely co- correct. And on, on this statement, I'll build my church according to Matthew, um, they, they find themselves at Caesarea Philippi, which is th- this, this heart of, of paganism. It was the, sort of the, the, the god of Pan is, is, is one. Um, they, they believed it was the, the entrance to the underworld. And so all of this pagan stuff is happening a, 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 in their midst. And Jesus is basically confronting the culture. And, and, you know, it's in that same passage in Matthew. He says, you know, the gates of, of Hades won't be able to restrain the church. And, 
and it puts the church on this offensive weapon that, we're, that the church is, is given and gifted to go and to, to pierce the darkness and to be an offensive weapon um, with the gospel. And, and so up to that point, everything is kosher, we could say. But then we're told, especially in both, all of the accounts, we're told that, that at that point, Jesus then shifts his uh, focus of his ministry and his teaching and his equipping of the saints. Up to that point, if you follow Matthew, all the way through, he's teaching about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. You get to that, that line in the sand, and then he starts talking about the cross and his suffering and his persecution and the things that are going to happen to him. And at that, Peter can't take it anymore. And Peter basically says, no, he pulls Jesus aside. He says, hey, I need to talk to you, Jesus. Um, actually, he says he rebuked him. And so he scolded Jesus for the things that he said. And then Jesus basically addresses the disciples and he says, you know, guys, this is, um, th- this is my way. This, this, this is what the Father has in store for me. The cross is absolutely required. Um, and if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself. You need to pick up your cross, which isn't a piece of jewelry. This is a, the, the most heinous, I mean, still probably today is the most heinous form of execution. Um, you know, we could do a little survey of different ways that you could execute somebody. But I think historically the cross is probably one of the worst. And, and so there, there's sort of this, there's this, I don't know what they were, they, they just, I can't imagine what they were trying to comprehend. What, like, they've seen Jesus now do these miracles. They've seen him calm the storm. They've seen him raise people from the dead. They've, they've seen him create food out of nothing. And yet here he is saying, I'm going to go and they're going to get me and I'm going to die. And I'm, you know. but, but he also did say, I'm going to raise three days later that they didn't quite gather. Um, it, was, it was unthinkable. <clears throat> And so verse 38 of chapter 8, as we enter into verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 1, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So now he's speaking of this, the second, like, he's speaking of the second coming, they didn't have the concept of the second coming. We look in the rearview mirror. They didn't have that luxury. And so they're trying to take this all in. Okay, so we're going to pick up our crosses. We're going to be executed. If we want to follow us, you're going to be executed. But then there's this, you're coming in glory. And, and so then we get into the next verse. And it says, and Jesus was saying to them, to the whole group, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Uh, so, so the context, Jesus has just talked about picking up your cross, um, that he's going to suffer many things. And now as he looks at the 12, he says, some of you, like not all of you, but some of you, before you taste death, which is, a, which is an idiom of their day, which, kind of, I mean, it doesn't need explaining, that, that you won't experience death before you see the kingdom of God after it comes with power. And I, I just imagine them sort of speechless. I, I, 
you know, the whole, like, I hope nobody asks a question. <laughs> like, I don't. Um, any, like, are they getting adrenaline? Like, something really bad is going to happen to them? Like, some of you, does that mean that a whole bunch of us are going to be killed? We're going to face the cross before all of this, and we're not going to see the kingdom? There's been a whole bunch of theological discussion over um, what is he talking about. I, 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 I don't agree with most of it. Um, some say, uh, like Preterists would say, oh, this is a destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Uh, there, there's another one. I, I, I think it ignores the immediate context, which we'll get into. I think the immediate context is the transfiguration. Um, and so we're told that after he says this, verse 2, six days later, if you read from Matthew's account, Matthew will tell you it was eight days later, but you sort of learn that the two extra days are the, the what we call like bookend days, like travel days. Um, so you have, you know, if you take two away, you get to six, like full days. And so we're told six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. Uh, so now I do want to look at the map behind me. So, um, so the star, the star is, is Mount Tabor. Um, the reason that Mount Tabor is listed there is because this is sort of the traditional site that they have said, oh, this is a traditional site where we think that the, Mount, the, tra- the transfiguration occurred at. We, we don't really know. It's down by, um, it's down by uh, Nazareth. And if you've looked at pictures of um, the Jezreel Valley, um, it, I, the only way I can think to describe it, it's a little mountain that looks like a pimple. And it looks like it needs to be like popped. And I'm thinking of the horrible video, Christina, so thank you very much. <laughs> like her kids, like they're, uh, um, Don't ask me follow-up questions because it's terrible. Um, <clears throat> so I don't, think, I don't think logically it makes sense to be Mount Tabor because it just, it's, it's not where they are. Now, the, the arrow is pointing to Mount Hermon. This is, I think, where most scholars now believe that, that this event happened. It's, it's uh, 15 miles, I think, north, uh, 12 miles northeast of Caesarea Philippi. So they're, they're right there. And it seems that he, you know, we're given that they're in Caesarea Philippi. We're told that he departs and then he comes back. It just logically makes sense that that's where he went, not all the way back down to Mount Tabor, and then all the way back to collect the guys and then to, to go. So it, it seems like it's Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon is, is fascinating. I, I, um, if you, we can click to the next picture, which I, we have uploaded. This is like they're skiing in Israel, and it's huge. Did it upload? I forgot to upload it, and I ran out. Okay, good, it went there. <clears throat> so maybe... Um, yeah, you guys can see it. I heard the wows, but it's, it's, a, it's looking at it. It's a huge snow-covered mountain. Snow is on it um, most of the time. Where they're at, if they were to make the approach from the western edge, they said it's about a 9,000-foot elevation. And, and, and so it seems like it's a, a, a logical place. But at the end of the day, we don't, we don't know where this happened. It's no, nobody tells us, but, but it seems that this is the location, I think, um, so if you, we can go back to the previous slide. So we're told um, that Jesus takes the three uh, disciples, uh, Peter and James and John, who are brothers. These three guys were allowed special access multiple times. 
Um, so up to this point, they were allowed to see Jairus' daughter, uh, who was dead, and they were allowed in when Jesus raised her from the dead. So they saw that, which the other disciples didn't see. There's today's story, the transfiguration. So these are the three men who saw the transfiguration. So it's also good to remember that as we read Mark, to realize that Mark is getting his firsthand information from Peter. Um, so he's getting his like a firsthand account from Peter as he documents this the story. Um, and then the the other time is at Gethsemane when when they were brought in all the disciples to pray, and then he takes the three a little bit further, and they had nap time. They were supposed to be praying, but they had some nap time. So we see this is one of those stories where these three guys, who seem to be future leaders of the church, um, in many ways they're kind of like the the two of them are the, the, the bookends of the disciples. You have Peter, who's the oldest, and you have John, who's, who's the youngest. And then you have James, who uh, is the first martyr. And, and, and those guys are characters. So, so they're allowed in. So the second part of the verse, we read, um, and he was transfigured before them. Uh, we just kind of have to stop on this word. And I realize there's, there's no way that I can convey what happened. I mean, I can't. I didn't see this. I can't imagine. I, um, this isn't something that happened. Like, we've, anybody see this before? No. <laughs> like, we, like, we only have what's before us. And so there's the transfigured before them, and then there's the and. So a secondary to the transfiguration, sort of amplifying, we see his garments became radiant. So I think bright light, um, exceedingly white, like almost like a blinding light is what sort of comes to mind. Unique to Mark, he says, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. There's no way that any cleaner um, can create this brightness. Um, the word transfigured is a Greek word metamorphou, which is where we get metamorphosis from, which what, what comes to mind, we think of the 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 caterpillar that turns it metamorphosis into a butterfly. Um, and so the question, like, what, what, what's going on here? Um, so, so what's happening here? To go to Philippians 2.7, you don't have to turn there. It's written up there. But so in Philippians 2.7, as, as, as Paul writes about the kenosis, what we know theologically is the kenosis of Christ, which is where Christ emptied himself and he became a man. Um, a, a reminder of Christmas as we're entering into the Christmas season, as you go shopping and you're going to see Christmas trees, you're going to start seeing nativity scenes, you're going to start seeing all of these reminders and songs about the, the Lord, fairest baby Jesus. And, and it, we can fall into a trap to think that Jesus came into existence at his birth and that's absolutely not true. He existed in eternity past. Uh, he was there at the creation of the world, before the creation of the world. In Genesis 1, the Hebrew is in the, the plural where we see the triune God. And, and so what we see in Philippians 2.7, that he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made into the likeness of, of men. And so there was this veiling of Jesus as he came to earth. And it almost seems that what happens is, is there's sort of this, this peeling back of, of who he is. So they got a glimpse of Jesus pre-incarnation, uh, so prior to his first advent, 
And then they get a glimpse of who he is following his resurrection and as he returns back to his uh, heavenly state. Um, Revelation 1.14 describes Jesus in its opening vision by the Apostle John, who was present. We read, His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And so there's this brilliance, this, this look of Jesus there. At the end of Revelation, in Revelation 21, verse 23, we read, And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Like the source of light is Jesus. Um, So I don't think this is some cool like after the game fireworks show or like, like this is Jesus revealing to these three disciples his deity. This is overwhelming. I mean, this is, truly I say to you, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Verse 1. Peter, James, and John are the sum of the disciples. The others didn't see this, and they wouldn't see this. There's no other explanation that's offered for that, that verse that works better than the transfiguration. So six days after he says that, these three get this overwhelming glimpse of Jesus. Um, a question that I, I do think ties in, I, I find it fascinating, the word transfigured. It's like, well, how is this word used anywhere else in the New Testament? And it's used twice. Which is another one that will throw us for a little bit of a loop. Um, so in Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18, the Apostle Paul there writes, "But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transfigured is the word, into the same image from glory." to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So, so there Paul tells us uh, that, that we as believers in Christ, in our sinful bodies, in our sinful state, there's a process of, of transformation that's helping us or moving in our lives to Christ's likeness. And w- that somehow these fallen, sinful, broken bodies are going to be transfigured into this, this heavenly glory. It's beautiful. It's overwhelming. It's a guessing game. I, I, like, it's a mystery. We'll talk about it one day all together. Like, man, like, check this out. You know, I can only... Romans 12.2, a very famous verse, well known. Romans 12.2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transfigured. By the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so the the picture that the Bible paints of 
regeneration, new life, to be born again is to be transfigured, that the old has gone away with, the new has come, that within us, the Spirit of God dwells and He's moving us into His likeness. It's, it's powerful. And the only pitch, the only time that when we look at 2 Corinthians and Romans 2, the only time that that word is used to give us insight of what they're talking about is a transfiguration when Jesus on the mountain suddenly pulls back his, his humanity and he reveals to them his deity. And they're, they're overwhelmed, but this isn't even the end of the, this isn't even the, end of the story. Verse 4, all of a sudden Elijah appeared to them with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. There's a lot of commentary. Why Elijah and Moses? What, you know, I've, I've heard, and I kind of like, uh, that Elijah and Moses represent, or let's do it the other way, M- Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. So like the whole of the Old Testament. There seems to be this, before these three apostles, this endorsement of the whole of the scriptures that they know, the two leaders of Israel in, in many respects are suddenly there with Jesus in all of his glory and all of his divinity sort of giving their seal of approval. But we're also told, well, there's a couple things we're not told, which I kind of find funny. So thankfully, uh, I, I like Luke. I appreciate his writing, his detail. In Luke 9.32, he gives us... Uh, a detail that Mark doesn't share. Uh, we're told that they'd fallen asleep. <laughs> so these guys, these three guys have three special occasions with Jesus. Two of the three times they're asleep. Like God is about to do something fascinating with them and they're asleep at the wheel two, two of the three times. And so Luke tells us that, that they're asleep. But then before he tells us that, he says that what they woke up to was this vision of Jesus and seeing Moses and Elijah there, and the three of them are having a conversation, which we see here, that they were talking. And it's in the, the tense of the Greek, it, it implies that there's an extended conversation happening. What are they talking about? Luke tells us. Luke tells us, chapter 9, verse 30 through 31, and behold, two men were talking with him. And they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Man, can you, I get goosebumps just thinking. Remember the whole context. Going back to chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. This is the whole thing that got Peter to pull Jesus aside and to rebuke him. And for Jesus then to rebuke Peter and for him to sort of straighten out their thinking or to try to straighten out their thinking. And they were very much like in the previous section, remember the blind guy, like the optometrist? How's how's your vision now? It's like, well, I see men, but they seem like trees kind of moving around. Jesus does some tweaking. The guy says, I see clearly now. And he... He went home, and, and it seemed to be because Jesus didn't need two shots to straighten out the guy's scene or his vision, but it seems to be a, 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 a tangible illustration that the apostles, oh man, it's like they're, part, they're partway seeing it. They're partway in focus, and the spiritual things that they're seeing, they're kind of like they're supposed to be men, but they're, 
they're trees and shapes and they can almost pull it together, but they can't. And so now they're given this insight. And it's like the focus isn't there all, all together yet, but it's getting a little bit more clear. And I think that as, as their lives progress and the, the journey of Christ continues to unfold, their vision is going to get very clear. But at this point, they wake up to two guys, Elijah and Moses, and they're talking with Jesus and they're listening. And the conversation between Moses and Elijah is about Jesus heading to the cross, talking about the suffering that he's about to endure. And I think ultimately what's happening here is God is giving these three men a little bit of perspective. And in the midst of suffering, like perspective is exactly what we need. Um, I don't know why I read a book this week. Um, I have no idea why or how I ended up reading the book. Um, but about Johnny Erickson Tata and her husband, Ken Tata. For some reason, I decided, like, for whatever reason, I'm going to read a book about Joni, like, Joni Erickson Tata's married. For those who don't know Joni Erickson Tata, she was, uh, she dove into uh, like the bay on the east coast at 17 years old and, bro- and broke her neck and so she's paralyzed from the neck down. And so, and she got married at 30. After, like, so 15 years after her paralyzation, she got married. And so they have a book on marriage and I don't even know, like, like why did I start reading this book? I don't know. Well, I think I know now. <laughs> and so I start reading the book and I'm like, man, she got married at 30. Like, like again, Who'd marry quadriplegic? Like, that just seems like a weird, like, that seems like a weird, th- and, I, and I'm quoting her. I mean, she's saying, like, I, I, she'd given up on marriage. And, and, and so this whole book, I thought it was going to be, like, this warm and feely, like, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I, like, but, but, I, but the whole book was about suffering. And suffering, it is a great book on marriage. Like, she starts the journey about, like, well, here's this guy. He starts talking with me. And he doesn't seem to be like impressed with my fame or anything like that. Like we're just in church and we start talking and, and it was nice. And, it, and a few weeks later, this boy, I mean not boy, this man, he actually asks her out on a dinner date. And so she starts from the very beginning, like on the dinner date. And then she says, well, I'm going to see what this guy's really about because my bladder bag <laughs> needs some changing. <laughs> And I don't know many guys on their first date with a gal uh, change their wife's bladder bag. So the guy changes their bladder bag, and it was his first time, so there was some mess involved with it. And like, like she just goes through the severity of, and suffering that they went. Like, they, like every marriage, you go into it sort of with the puppy dog eyes, and everything's wonderful and hunky-dory. And then all of a sudden, uh, <clears throat> you know, they're... <laughs> You guys are laughing before I even got it. All the married people are laughing because they know exactly where I'm going. Like, that's really awesome. They say love is blind, but marriage is an eye-opener, you know? And, and, and it's compounded. Like, reading their story of him, like, very humbling. But then there's no rose petals in this story. I mean, it's it, like, they're like, what were we thinking? And they go through their journey, and then she eventually gets cancer. 
and she gets breast cancer, and there's this whole battling of breast cancer. She, I guess when you're quadriplegic, sometimes like your brain sends really mixed signals, and she had like excruciating pain. And none of the doctors can figure out where the pain is. She's like, I just feel excruciating pain, and it's somewhere. Because she can't, she doesn't know her body part. Like she's just like, it's somewhere. I think it's my shoulder or hip or back, but it's like, I, it's, it's unbearable. And so as they go through this whole like journey, she talks a lot about just like, why is God doing this? And her journey of suffering and her view of, of death, death, like she talks in terms of gratitude for her suffering in, in ways that we who don't suffer that way can understand. And she says there's this, this, this uh, when she was diagnosed with breast cancer and she was like, there was almost like a joy within me because it was like, is this how God is going to free me from this body of pain? And she's like, I'm not suicidal. But it was just a richness about perspective of suffering and the glory of Christ that I think we see in Peter's writings that we don't get from the world. And, and this Saturday at men's Bible study, Brian, who has an agony that we can't understand, we think, oh, he's hard of hearing. But there's also the noise and, and this, the, the agony he has. And he, when he talks about death, He's like, it's not like I'm, it's not that, but there is this joy. And when he said this, I'm like, you sound like Joni Erickson Tata. Like you sound exactly like a person who has experienced the the beauty of, of suffering in a way that God has revealed himself to you, that the suffering means nothing. It's just, it has a different perspective. And I'm reading the book. And when I read books by people, it's like, I want to hear their voices so that I can pretend their voices are in my head. Not, not like that, but like, you know, when I read the words, I can hear them talking. And so then I, I Google her to like watch a video. And she has a 20-minute devotional that was to the students at Dallas Theological Seminary that she had to do remotely because the cancer has come back. And in this 20-minute devotion, she's talking to these kids about suffering. And she's like, all these verses that we talk about and how well, the Jeremiah 29, 11, the one that we all love to quote for my, you know, for God, his plans I have for you good and not to do you harm and, you know, not yada, 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 but that's Gunner's very bad translation. And she says, we view this from a fleshly perspective because God's giving me all of this suffering and he means good for me, but spiritually, that he's doing a work in me through this suffering that is, well, she's not using her hands, of course, like I, but she's talking and it's captivating and it's powerful. And it's like she's seen the glory of Christ. And so the suffering, which is very real for her, is giving wisdom to me. And I, like, I, str- like, I don't even know the name of the book, but I'd encourage you to re- like, read it. It'll help you in your marriage. It'll help you in your relationships. It'll help you in your suffering. If I was a better pastor, I would give you the title of the book, but I'm sure there's only one jo- Johnny Erickson taught it. Hey, there you go. Look at that. Oh, well, I didn't know. That was all very unconnected. So God was like, <clears throat> so, so where are we? Verse 5. So there's Peter. 
I love Peter. So Peter, who's asleep for most of it, like wakes up to this, the conversation, the suffering. Remember, we can't lose sight of the context. Peter, like the immediate context is that Peter has just, like six days earlier, has rebuked Jesus for talk of this whole crucifixion, this whole suffering thing and all of this. And then Jesus has crucified him. Now he wakes up seeing Moses and Elijah and Jesus in a transfigured state, having a conversation about what is going to go down in Jerusalem. And Peter says, Rabbi, it's, it's good for us to be here. Like, so he starts, Moses, Elijah, Jesus are there. Peter's terrified. He just, he needs to talk when he's terrified. Like, he just needs to talk. And he's like, this thing, you're glowing, and, 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 and you're Elijah, and you're Moses. It's, this is just fantastic that I'm here, that we're here. It's so good that you have us with you. Like, and I, I don't know what kind of bumbling he did, but, but, he thought it was just fantastic that they, that they were all there. And so he's talking about it. And then he goes in to let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, there's a lot of people that make fun of Peter for this that I think that they don't understand the history, like the, the, the timeline, the, the historical context of what's going on in this setting. These aren't, these aren't shrines to worship them. The, this is believed, uh, let me just read this, this quote, um, or not even this quote, my notes. So there's a such thing as biblical chronologists. So there are guys with very thick glasses that study and research. All, they have a, an amazing brain capacity to take in all of this historical information and to, to piece together the, the chronology of the Bible. And so they, they place this event in October, six months prior to the crucifixion, which would be during Sukkot, which is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is one of the three, um, th- this is one of the main three holidays that they would celebrate. And part of this celebration was, uh, it's, it's a reminder, I'll read something from John MacArthur, but just to let you know, it's, it's, a, it's a reminder of the Exodus. It's a reminder of their being freed and they're wandering and living in the booths. And it's and in this, there's this, uh, there's this, there's this anticipation for the coming Messiah, and that that the booths remind them that this is anticipation for the Messiah to come with Elijah and his coming kingdom. And so Peter, in his theology, in his understanding, verse one, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the last thing that they said before they go on this field trip. And so Peter, in his thinking, totally understandable, he's thinking the kingdom of God is being ushered in because now the king is in all of his glory and power and might and majesty and glory and splendor. And there's Moses and there's Elijah. And the kingdom of God has to be ushered in. And so it is the Feast of Booths. And they're far from Jerusalem, but every good Jew would celebrate the Feast of Booths. And if you go to Israel during Sukkot, I've been there during this time. This is, you'll see little booths on, like little, like, like, you know, those little bamboo things that you do for privacy with a little, like, palm roof. It's, it's very, ba- but it's, it's in every building, everywhere they'll have this to remind them of God's faithfulness and delivering them through the whole exodus and a reminder that their Messiah is returning. And so Peter, a good Jew, They're up here on Mount Hermon, away from their Jewish people, out of that context. And here he sees prophecy, what he believes being fulfilled. Now he misunderstands. 
And so he says, we'll get the, we'll get the tabernacle set up. Uh, MacArthur on this says, during, the month, uh, during this month, the Jews celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles or booths, and it's possible that at this very time, the feast was being observed in Jerusalem. During a period of seven days, the people lived in small shelters or booths, uh, symbolizing the temporary dwelling of their forefathers in the wilderness. It was a memorial to God's preserving his chosen and redeemed people. Deliverance into the promised land. And so it's like hard to know exactly what Peter is thinking, but I'm not going to, like, I am not going to criticize this guy for how he responds in the midst of this because the timing, the anticipation, the things that were told him, the whole idea of the cross just doesn't make, it just doesn't make sense because of what they're looking forward to. And I do think that there's a good reminder to us. We think we have theology all figured out. We think we have the Bible all mastered. Be humble in your convictions. I mean, have your convictions, but in the things that aren't plain and clear, be humble. Because there are brothers and sisters in Christ who have deep convictions that are exactly opposed to yours over secondary issues, and that's okay. But then as Peter's like babbling, we're told that he's terrified, which makes total sense, like how he was able to speak in that, like, how this just didn't result in all of them falling on their faces. I don't know how he was able to get words out and like comprehensive sentences in the midst of this. As he's talking, we're told in verse 7 that a cloud formed overshadowing them. I think that them is Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. And out of this cloud, a voice, a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. This is the son whom I love. Listen to him. Now, the immediate context. Listen to him about what? Well, Peter already was talking back to the son about the crucifixion. So when he says he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified, Peter, listen to him. Peter wouldn't get this, right? He's still, on the night which Jesus was betrayed, as he was being arrested, Peter's the guy who cut off the guy's ear. He's still, there's, he's still seeing trees, not clarity. Like, there's, there's a hole he's missing. He's, he's seeing it, but he's, he's not quite all the way there. So he says, listen to him. Deny yourself, Peter. Pick up the cross and follow me. Or follow him. And all at once they looked around and they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And I just like imagined silence. Uh, hearts racing. Fear trembling. Like how, how do you respond? And we're not told that there's any response after this. Then we head down the mountain in verse 9. And we told as they were coming down the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Oh, we're back to this, remember? <laughs> Chapter 8, verse 31, when he says this, that he's going to be killed and he's going to raise on the third day. And he was speaking about these things plainly. Like we're back on that subject. The whole context is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and, and trying to get the apostles to get it. And so we're told that when he said, don't, like everything you saw, don't say anything. Don't say anything to the other guys. Oh man, how do you not like, like I have a hard time not trying to keep the secret about the fun thing that we have planned for Thanksgiving celebration. Like, I, like how would you keep your mouth? That's why it wasn't me. Um, but he said, don't say anything until after the man rose from the dead. Now, of course, 
the Jewish thought they had anticipation of the resurrection from the dead. Remember, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. They thought at the last days there would be a resurrection. And, and so we're told that in verse 10, they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what raising from the dead meant. Because Jesus has thrown this, this curveball into their thinking. They understood at the very end there'd be this resurrection, but now Jesus is talking about they're going to Jerusalem and Jesus is going to be crucified and then he's going to rise on the third day. And so they're, like, while they're apart from the rest of the guys, they're brainstorming this, this, this whole situation. And then in verse 11, they asked him. So then they have a question for Jesus. They're trying to piece together everything. And they ask him, saying, why, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So they have all of these, like they just saw Elijah. They saw the glory of Jesus. And now they're thinking about their, their education as children all growing up. And they say, why is, it that Eli- why is it that they say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come and restore all things. And then he asked them a question. And yet, how is it written that the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I think he's alluding to Isaiah 53, which they're not talking about. But then he answers the question, but I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Now, what he's talking about now, he's, he's alluding to John the Baptist, who came in the spirit of Elijah at the first advent. That's the whole Malachi, that as Jesus came, and this fits with the Christmas season, there was this, this promise that there'd be a forerunner, and we see in the birth of Christ, after the silent 400 years between the close of Malachi and the beginning of the announcement of Christ, we see John the Baptist as a forerunner of Christ, came in the spirit of Elijah, and it's all there um, you guys can do your own study and see that or go back to the, when we did Malachi and Matthew. Um, you can read it there. <clears throat> then, so he speaks about the first advent. But then if I figure out where I'm at, so, but I say to you, verse 13, that Elijah has come and they did whatever they wished of him, verse 14. Um, oh, no, 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 no. <clears throat> the first part, they're talking about the second advent. So when Christ comes again, and he says that Elijah will come, it seems to be this picture that we find in Revelation 11 of the two witnesses, that it's likely Elijah. Um, <clears throat> the, the thing about this conversation, uh, every now, like not every now, every now and again, I'll get this bit of information that kind of is, makes me, I don't know, I don't know that there's a, I don't know that there's. A, I don't know if I can articulate it to you because I don't know if I've settled it into my mind. So there's like, should I share this? But but so I'm in this group of pastors pastors online. I say, hey guys, like I just want to make sure I'm not missing something. I, w- I was trying to identify. Nobody ever really lays out anywhere on paper like these three guys had these events special. Um, and I'm like, I, I'm pretty sure it's it's you know the the Jairus's daughter. I'm pretty sure it's transfiguration. And Gethsemane. Those are, those are the three I can think of. Is there, is there anything else? And another guy kind of commented, and he said, well, there's one that's kind of fascinating. It's a little bit different, and I don't think it qualifies. But he's like, if you're in Mark 9, what you're going to get to and what we're going to get to, and I want to point out to you, so let's get ahead just a little bit. So if you go to Mark chapter 13, 
which, which sort of brings the picture. Um, so Matthew 24, Matthew 25, what, are, what is known as the Olivet Discourse. And we see these, the Olivet Discourse is very difficult to understand. It's talking about the end times and all of these things. But Mark records something that I absolutely find fascinating. And I think it kind of ties together with the transfiguration. So I want to say it now in case I forget by the time we get to Mark 13. But in Mark 13, verse 3, um, it says, as he, was, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew were questioning him privately. So there's the three of them, Peter, James, and John. Now, Andrew is also Peter's brother. So I don't know if they spilled the beans a little bit to Andrew or if it was like, but so these three plus one who saw the transfiguration, the rest of the stuff hasn't happened yet. We see back where we are today where they're having this conversation about Elijah. They have all these questions to Jesus relating to this. And I don't know how Andrew somehow, I mean, clearly he's Peter's brother. So I'm thinking that that was like his end. But then privately, they asked Jesus, tell us when will all these things be and what will be the sign of all these things that will be fulfilled? And so the whole Olivet Discourse is, is not publicly to all of the disciples. It's to these select few, well, the three that saw the transfiguration plus Andrew, which I had to these guys leak the bean. Like somehow he had access. And it seems like, okay, we're, we're allowed to talk about this. When exactly? Like how is all this going down? It's just fascinating. Okay, that's... I'll, I'll move on. I wanted to share this. So what do we do with this story? Let's, let's wrap up here. Um, Peter's writings in First and Second Peter, he's, he's known to be the apostle that deals with suffering. Like if you're going through trials and tribulations, I'd encourage you to go through Peter, like First and Second Peter over and over again. Um, his last writing in Second Peter chapter 1, he opens up what he lays out based on the transfiguration perspective. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, he writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, everything I've written to you about the, the power and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that propels us about that day when we stand before him that should motivate your life, everything we wrote about, we're not, we're not making stuff up, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter says, we saw him. So after his death, burial, resurrection, ascension into heaven, as Peter's leading the church, as he's about to be executed for his faith in his last writing, he says, I didn't make this up to you. This isn't just fairy fables, uh, fairies, fables. And there's a third option. I don't know what it is, but, but he's like, we saw his majesty. We saw his transfigured glory. We heard the Father's voice out of, of heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is the perspective that you need to get through the sufferings that I'm going to talk to you about. Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time 
are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He has perspective, not on his sufferings, but on the glory that's to come. And as he sees the glory that's to come, it doesn't matter what's happening to him. And that's how Paul endured and what he shared to the followers of Christ, that as we suffer, that, that we would keep an eye on his glory. And I realize I'm writing this in a context of Americans who we don't know suffering like the vast majority of Americans or the Christians around the world. So my prayer is that we would have perspective on who Jesus is. And when you are dealing with cancer, when you're dealing with a loss, when you're dealing with whatever sorrow and pain and agony that you're going through, that your vision of who Christ is would be clear because he's greater than anything that you're going through. Jesus gave them perspective of who he was so that they could endure. And I believe that Jesus gives us perspective of who he is so that we can get through all things. And this gives us perseverance, hope, and encouragement in our present sufferings because through our present sufferings, this leads us, guides us, aids us in our process of being transfigured. Like we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 and Romans 12, 2. So, Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this revelation of Jesus in all of his glory and splendor that, as Colossians tells us, that Jesus is the one who spoke creation into existence. Father, it's so easy for us to lose sight of the majesty of Christ and his beauty and his glory and his power. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to focus our vision on him, that we spiritually would see him as he is. Um, Lord, we each go through sufferings. Uh, We have relationships that are difficult. We have our bodies, which can be difficult. The the many different facets of sufferings that, that we face as humans is vast. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that we, we don't like suffering. As the writer of Hebrews says, that, that no discipline at the moment seems pleasant. But, Father, we pray that you would help us to, uh, to lean into the suffering that you have allowed to come into our lives. We ask that you would help us to see you clearly, that we would allow you to mold us and shape us into the people that you desire us to be. Uh, we thank you. Uh, for this this painful work of refining that goes about in this lifetime. But we, uh, we, we push forward, we look forward to that future day when we stand in your presence and that you wipe every tear from our eyes and that we're transfigured into the new uh, creation that you have created for us. So Father, pr- please help us to, to see that day so that we would live our lives today in a way that's meaningful, preparing ourselves for that day. That's in his name we pray. Amen.